And already this morning, we saw one uh, key introductory truth uh, taught by the Ten Commandments as a whole, uh, taken as a, as a complete list. And that truth is that God's people are to live their lives based on fixed objective principles and not fickle subjective feelings. Tonight, my desire is to begin to walk us through some further introductory truths that will help us to make the most of our study of these commandments. When Israel was approaching the holy mountain, uh, we've seen that how they approached really mattered. Uh, Preparations were made, uh, certain principles were announced ahead of time. Uh, These people were to wash their garments. They were to abstain from sexual intimacy. They were to be very careful not to touch the holy mountain. Well, similarly, my goal is to prepare us for the Ten Commandments by outlining some general truths about the commandments as a whole. And I want us to approach them rightly with with these things in mind. Um, But before we do that, let's come back to the mountain Remember, it's trembling, it's aflame with fire. And let's hear again the booming, soul-shaking voice of God uh, as He spoke audibly, loudly to the people of Israel from the mountain. And what did He say? We find in Exodus 20, beginning of verse 1. So let's read it again. Exodus 20, beginning of verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, first, in this list of introductory truths about the Ten Commandments, is that the Ten Commandments are needed. The Ten Commandments are needed. Uh, They are needed in every generation. 
They are needed by all people. But it is incumbent upon us to acknowledge that we need these commandments. Christians in the 21st century need these commandments. We Christians right here in Rocky Mount need these commandments. Uh, Years ago, J.I. Packer diagnosed the modern church as being morally flabby. And he argued that the root cause of this moral flabbiness is our neglect of the law of God. Uh, It is no secret that in many churches today, you are likely to hear a great deal about God's grace and His love, but almost nothing about His commands and injunctions. God's messengers have been charged with preaching the whole counsel of God, and yet many tend to stay away from preaching God's rules. Perhaps they're afraid that their listeners won't understand that the law is actually a gift of God's grace itself. That that God's rules are an expression of His great love. Uh, David viewed God's commands as sweeter than honey and as a delight to his soul. But we are quick to see them only as a burden and as a restraint on our freedom. Alistair Begg says that one part of this problem is that we no longer have a positive view of duty. It used to be that when someone called you to do your duty, that was a noble call. That was a welcomed challenge. Duty was something viewed very positively, but not anymore. Uh, Begg says, if we are prepared to be honest, we face the fact that in contemporary evangelicalism, duty along with truth has fallen in our streets. The average church attendee has grown accustomed to responding to sermons that appeal to their sense of well-being. They are prepared to be coaxed, but not to be commanded, particularly if the call to duty would prove a source of personal inconvenience. Neil Postman observed that effectiveness in TV preaching was in part tied to making sure that the preacher avoided making any demands upon his listeners. Begg says the cultural climate is one in which there is plenty of room for personal preferences, but little, if any, for eternal principles. Friends, by forsaking the law of God, the church of Christ continues to compromise on the moral issues of our day. There is a great difference between who we ought to be as the salt of the earth and the light of the world and who many of us actually are at any given time. And our compromises today as the church of Christ are built on our compromises of yesterday. So today the church is confronting the redefinition and the dishonoring of marriage But we compromised on principles of biblical divorce decades ago. Today we're facing issues surrounding homosexuality, but it's because we first failed to hold the line on biblical heterosexuality. Today we're dealing with issues of gender confusion and transgenderism, but this is at least in part because the Church of Christ has largely thrown in the towel on issues of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. With each compromise that we make of God's law, we make the next compromise a little bit easier. And our light becomes a little dimmer against the darkness of our culture. 
At no point in her history has the United States been less Christian and less godly than she is now. Uh, There have been other cultures and other nations that have been far more ungodly than we are now. So let me keep balance there. But at no point in our history as the United States has this nation ever been this ungodly. Our country has been a melting pot from the beginning. We don't need to pretend that all the first colonists were God-fearing people. They weren't, but a lot of them were. Even among those that did not fear God, biblical moral principles had been absorbed into the culture and often held a foundational sway in their lives. But that moral foundation is crumbling beneath our feet and more rapidly now than ever before. As Dr. Al Mohler loves to point out, what's so striking about the current moral revolution is not that it's happening, but that it's happening so swiftly. That it's moving so rapidly. America is returning to the, to the pagan ways of pre-Christian cultures faster than most of us would have expected. As our culture turns her back on the Ten Commandments, we all reap the consequences. Our rejection of God's law wreaks havoc throughout the land. In every neighborhood, it touches every home. Uh, The famous statement is still right. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And the addictions, the broken homes, the devaluing of women and children, the complete enslavement of millions to all that is trivial, coupled with arrogance and the snarkiness of this generation, just prove that we are reaping what we have sown in neglecting the law of God. And so for the sake of our own souls, and in order to be a blessing to those we love and those all around us, for the sake of those around us who are hurting, for those around us who are lost, for the sake of of the gospel around the world, the church of Jesus Christ needs to recover the Ten Commandments. They are needed. Second, let me say that the Ten Commandments are relevant. That they are relevant. Why do some people think the Ten Commandments are irrelevant? Well, for many, it's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That is, they think the Ten Commandments are irrelevant just because they're old. And they are old. They're very, very old. And some people say that the Ten Commandments are outdated. They were fine for a, a past generation. They were fine for past cultures. But the Ten Commandments make no sense for our modern times. Famous example of this is the atheist Ted Turner. Uh, he owns numerous cable networks and all of that. And back, uh, way back in 1990, he was awarded, awarded the Humanist of the Year Award by the American Humanist Association. And in his speech, he said this. He said, we're living with outdated rules. The rules we've been living under are the Ten Commandments. And I bet nobody here even pays much attention to them because they're too old. When Moses went up on the mountain, there were no nuclear weapons. There was no poverty. Today, the Ten Commandments wouldn't go over. Nobody around likes to be commanded. Commandments are out. And so he went on to suggest in his acceptance speech that the Ten Commandments be replaced with what he called his Ten Voluntary Initiatives. 
and that's not a joke, that's what he called them, the 10 voluntary initiatives. I'll give you just a, a sample. Initiative one, I love and respect planet Earth and all living things thereon, especially my fellow species, mankind. Initiative three, I promise to have no more than two children or no more than my nation suggests. Initiative five, I promise to use as little non-renewable resources as possible. So for Mr. Turner and many others today, these kind of statements in their mind are a better fit for our day. A better fit for their understanding of what we need than a list of rules given to an ancient nation thousands of years ago. But there are others who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, believers in the Bible who also think that the Ten Commandments are not relevant for us. Uh, they see the, the commandments given to national Israel at Mount Sinai and, and they conclude those commandments were not meant for everyone. They were meant simply for Israel while it existed. And so perhaps you've heard of the view called dispensationalism. Everybody say dispensationalism. Okay. Uh, this is the view that many of us grew up in churches that held to this, whether they said it out loud or not, whether they even knew that's what they held to. It's what many of them did. Uh, this view says that we should separate history into different dispensations in which God dealt with people in different ways. Uh, Charles Ryrie is an example of a very famous dispensationalist. And he argues in his book that the Ten Commandments were part of the dispensation of the Mosaic Law, which he said existed from Exodus 19 till Pentecost. But after Pentecost, he said, we left that dispensation. We left the dispensation of the Mosaic Law. We are now in what he called the dispensation of grace. And that means the Ten Commandments are no longer a part of God's dealings with men. Uh, that view was made very popular even before Ryrie uh, through the Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, many of us grew up in churches affected by the Schofield Reference Bible. This was the view taught by the notes in that study Bible. Now in our day, dispensationalism has begun to fade in popularity. And in recent days, a, a view called New Covenant Theology has begun to come up. Does everybody say New Covenant Theology? Okay. Um, this is a good step forward from dispensationalism. And I have dear friends, one that I was with this past week, uh, who holds to this view, and he's planning a church in Greenville, and I was very excited to hear what, what God is doing in him and, and in that church. And so uh, I do think New Covenant Theology is a good step forward from dispensationalism. It, on this subject, however, uh, has not come to the view, at least that I think is the right view. Uh, like Schofield and Dispensationalism, New Covenant theology teaches that the Ten Commandments were part of the Old Covenant and they've now been replaced in the New Covenant by a new set of commandments. Uh, they say that the Mosaic Law has now been replaced by what they call the Law of Christ or they sometimes call it the Law of Love. In particular, they point to Jesus' teaching at the Sermon on the Mount and suggest that Jesus' commands there replace the commands at Mount Sinai. So to quote uh, Fred Zaspel from his book on New Covenant Theology, he says, It seems that Jesus, one, claims an authority that is superior to that of Moses, and that's true, and two, exercises that authority by taking the law of Moses in whatever direction he sees fit. In some cases, Jesus leaves the particular command intact, 
In other cases, he extends the teaching of the command as originally given or advances it in some other way. In still other cases, he seems to rescind the original legislation or to at least restrict it. And so according to this view, Christians would do better to look at the moral teaching of the New Testament, what's called the law of Christ, and to view the Ten Commandments as belonging primarily to the Old Covenant and to the ancient people of Israel. Now, if that's true, it would not be wise for us to spend weeks studying the Ten Commandments if they weren't intended for us. So what I want to do for the rest of the time tonight is just show you why I believe the Ten Commandments are still applicable and relevant for us. Some of these arguments dispensationalists and New Covenant folks would agree with, some of them they would not. But I think it's important that before we study these commandments, I establish that they really do have authority and that they really do apply to us. All right, we're going to cruise through them. Ten arguments. You ready? Here we go. Number one, the Ten Commandments are relevant because they are part of Scripture, and all Scripture is profitable for us. All Scripture is profitable for us. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So at the very least, just because the Ten Commandments are included in the Bible, we can say that they are part of God's inspired, authoritative word, and that there is a lasting, profitable meaning that we are supposed to get from those commandments. Uh, By studying these commandments, we grow up in Christ. We're made complete, equipped for the good work that God has given us to do in our various callings. Number two, the change from the old covenant to the new covenant was not a change from an old moral law to a new moral law, but from the law written on stone to the law written on hearts. Or to put it differently, it was not a change in law, but a change in tablets. Not a change in law, but a change in tablets. So to make this as clear as possible, I want you to see this for yourself. Turn to Jeremiah 31. Turn to Jeremiah 31. This is where we have God's promise of the new covenant. So the old covenant's being established right here, Exodus 20, Mount Sinai, God establishing this covenant with Israel. Jeremiah promises a day of a new covenant that God is going to make. And in that covenant, is God going to replace the law of the old covenant with a new law? Let's look at what he says. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So what we have in these verses in I think the clearest terms possible is what makes the new covenant truly new. It's not that God's going to give a new law. It'll still be the same law of God. 
but it's going to be the location of the law. Instead of God's commandments being kept on stone tablets in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies of the Temple, God is going to write His law on the hearts of His people. They are going to know God's moral commands and they are going to have a heartfelt desire to obey God's commands. Mount Hermon, the law of God is unchangeable because it's an expression of God's character. The Ten Commandments cannot be replaced or relegated to the past because they are still a revealed expression of who God is and of what God values. The New Testament further explains the Ten Commandments. The New Testament helps us apply the Ten Commandments. But the New Testament does not replace the Ten Commandments. As New Covenant people, Jeremiah said, we now have the Holy Spirit growing us up into obedience to the Ten Commandments. Unlike the Old Testament saints, we now have the example of Jesus to look to as we seek to keep these commandments. And most importantly, we're able to live in the knowledge of what Christ has done for us how he perfectly obeyed every one of these commandments on our behalf for us so that we don't obey out of a desperate attempt to earn salvation. We obey out of the joy that we have in having been saved. We have a new heart. That's what Jeremiah promised. That in the new covenant we would have a new heart that obeys the law of God. So there is a great change between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but the change isn't the law. It's not that the Ten Commandments are replaced with new commandments. It's that the commandments go from being outside of us to actually being put into our hearts so that we have hearts to obey them. Same law, new heart. Number three. Number three. Psalm 19.7 declares that God's law is perfect which means it cannot be improved upon. So so listen to this verse and think about the implications. David, talking about the law of the Lord, says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now when David writes this psalm and speaks about the law of God, He's thinking about the law of God revealed in the first five books of the Old Testament, what's called the Torah, what's called the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he says that this law is perfect. Now, when something is perfect, can you make it better? When something is perfect, can you change it or improve upon it? No, it's already as good as it possibly can be. In fact, the word perfect here means without fault. It means blameless, flawless. You can take the law of God in the Old Testament and you can go through it with a fine-tooth comb, but you cannot rightly find any fault with it at any point. The law of God is perfect through and through. David even says that the testimony of the Lord is sure. It means it's stable, it's solid, it's like concrete. It would be strange for the Old Testament to say that God's law is perfect and God's law is sure And then in the New Testament to say, but we're replacing that with a new law, right? No, the law of the Lord endures forever. The Ten Commandments are the centerpiece of the the moral commands of God's law, which do endure forever. So God will hate murder just as much in eternity future as he has in eternity past. He will hate idolatry. He will hate discontentment and dishonest lips. God's laws endure because what he values does not change with the time. Psalm 119, 142 makes the connection for us. 
It says, your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. In other words, David connects God's law to God's own intrinsic righteousness, who God is. And and this is parallelism. It's two parallel statements connected to one another. And David says, God is righteous and his righteousness is forever. What he deems good and evil remains that way forever. Therefore, his law is true, steadfast, holds firm. Why? Because God's law is an expression of who he is. The very righteousness of God that David says endures forever. And so to argue that the Ten Commandments are just a relic from the past with no relevance for our lives is to argue that God's standards of righteousness are no longer relevant. Number four. Rather than replacing the Ten Commandments, Jesus reaffirmed the Ten Commandments at the Sermon on the Mount. Now there is a pretty cool analogy here, and you need to make sure you see it. Um, in Matthew 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is in the desert. And he's in the desert for 40 days and nights, just like Israel was going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. And just like Israel faced trials in the desert, we find Jesus being tempted by Satan in the desert. Then in Matthew 5, we see Jesus on a mountain. Just like Moses, Jesus now brings God's word to people. In the Sermon on the Mount, you are to realize that you are seeing the second Moses, the new Moses, the the better Moses. This is the Moses that the first Moses was always pointing to. Moses was the shadow. Jesus is the real thing. And just as Moses delivered the commandments of God in tablet form to the people of Israel... So Jesus, at the Sermon on the Mount, delivers commandments of God to those Israelites willing to hear from him. But does Jesus come bearing new commandments? Does he preach a different law than that preached by Moses? And the answer, at least as I see it, is not at all. Rather, he takes the commandments that God gave at Sinai and he simply applies them to people's hearts. So he takes the command for people not to murder, and he says, you do know that murder begins in the heart. If you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. He takes the commandment concerning adultery, and he he helps people to see that adultery begins with lust in the heart. Don't miss this. Every single command that Christ gives at the Sermon on the Mount is connected to and contained within one of the Ten Commandments. It turns out that the law of Christ is the same thing as the law of God given in the Ten Commandments. Jesus is God, and the law that he spoke is the same as the law that God handed down at Mount Sinai. In fact, the laws given at Mount Sinai were as much given by the Son of God as the laws given at the Sermon on the Mount. And they do not contradict one another because Jesus does not contradict himself. Moses was the messenger But just as he always does, God the Father worked through Jesus the Son to give those laws to Moses. It is Jesus who gave the law at Mount Sinai, just as it was Jesus who gives the law at the Sermon on the Mount. And he hasn't changed his mind during any of that time about any of those commandments. Still with me? Okay, number five. In Matthew 5, verses 17 through 18, 
Jesus specifically says that he did not come to abolish the law. He says, I did not come to abolish the law. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's very clear. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. When? Until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the law that Jesus is speaking about here is the law that he knew that the fellow Jews he was speaking to knew, the Old Testament law. And we know that because he speaks of the law and the prophets, which was shorthand way for the Jews to refer to the entire Old Testament. And Jesus says that not an iota, not not even a a single letter or even a squiggle, is going to pass away from the authority of God's law until heaven and earth pass away. Once this world is over... Once we're in heaven, uh, will we need the law anymore? I don't think so. I don't think we will because we'll be perfect. And the law of God will be perfectly expressed in us. But we won't need the law written down on paper or written down on tablets. We, We will not need to study the law of God like we're doing now because the law will be fully in us. It will have come to full fulfillment and expression. Our hearts will be glorified and perfected. So so the need for God's law will one day end. But Jesus says that day has not yet come. And as long as heaven and earth still exist, we still need the law of God and it does not pass away. As Jesus walked the earth and as he taught people, he had very little to say about the civil and the ceremonial aspects of God's law. But Jesus had lots to say about the moral aspects of the law of God in the Old Testament. The civil and the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law are fulfilled in Christ. And they continue today in the sense that he continues as the one to whom they always pointed. Uh, The civil laws, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, they pointed to Christ. And we obey those Old Testament laws simply by looking and believing on the one to whom they pointed. But the moral aspects of God's law are not just fulfilled in Christ, but through Him they're fulfilled in us as we are made holy. In other words, Christ did not simply come to fulfill the moral commands of God for us, but that through Him God's moral commands would be filled in us. We are to live as obedient people. We're to grow up in Christ until the day we are glorified in our hearts and lives find find themselves in perfect accordance with God's will. Number six. Number six. Jesus gave a warning to those who would relax the commands of the Old Testament in Matthew 5.19. So this is the very next verse in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say they're lost. (laughs) He doesn't call them unbelievers. He doesn't say they've lost their salvation. He just says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about the Old Testament commandments of God, and he says, don't relax them. Teach them, and especially do them. Obey them. 
Number seven. In Romans 3.31, after speaking much about God's Old Testament law, Paul says that those of faith uphold the law. Let me say that again. In Romans 3.31, after speaking much about God's Old Testament law, Paul says that those of faith uphold that law. So in Romans 3, at the end of the chapter, we have what I've often called the Mount Everest of the Bible. Uh, We have the passage that I think explains the gospel more clearly than anywhere else in the whole Bible. Uh, In particular, Paul explains in Romans 3 that we are justified, that is, we're made right with God by faith and not by works of the law. Keeping the commands of God will not get you to heaven. Only faith in Jesus Christ will get you to heaven. But that raises a question. So Romans 3.31, oh, well if it's faith, faith alone is what saves us. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, does that mean we're done with the law? If I'm saved by faith in Jesus, can we just put aside all those commandments? Paul says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul expects somebody to say, Paul, if we're saved by faith alone, doesn't that mean we don't need the law anymore? Can't we be done with God's law? Isn't it overthrown by faith? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. He says that those who have real faith in Jesus Christ will uphold the law. And since he's been speaking about the Old Testament law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, all the way through Romans chapter 3, it makes the most sense that that's exactly what he's talking about here. Christ saved us not to overthrow the law of God, but that through faith in him we would become obedient people, that we would become holy, that we would become those who uphold God's law. Number eight. Number eight. The apostles point back to the Ten Commandments when teaching Christians how to live holy lives. So the apostles point back to the Ten Commandments When teaching Christians how to live holy lives. There are lots of examples of this. I'm going to mention just two. In Romans 13, when Paul is getting very practical. He's getting into the nitty gritty. And he's instructing the Roman Christians about how they are to live. He says this, Romans 13 beginning in verse 8. Owe no one anything except love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So what's Paul doing there? He's not replacing the Ten Commandments. He's helping the Roman Christians learn how to obey the Ten Commandments. He says, this is the way to do it. I'm not steering you away from them. I'm telling you how to obey them. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you want a summary for the Ten Commandments, it's love God and love your neighbor. And the more you love God, the more you're going to obey commandment one, two, three, four, all of them really. And the more you love your neighbor, the more you're going to obey those those horizontal commandments. Commandment five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Um. These two are the greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor, because they are a summary of the two tables of the Ten Commandments. 
Listen to James. This is James chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, there's a whole lot I could say about those verses, but the point I want you to see right now is that James is speaking to Christians and he's referring to the Ten Commandments as having abiding authority over their lives. He quotes the Ten Commandments and he says, if you violate it at one point, you're guilty of all of it. If you don't commit adultery, but you murder, you've broken all of the Ten Commandments. You fail to love God and your neighbor. James refers to the Ten Commandments as having abiding, continuing authority over the lives of Christians. Number nine. Number nine. Every one of the Ten Commandments existed before Mount Sinai and even before there were Jews. You ever thought about that? Every one of the Ten Commandments existed before Mount Sinai and before there were Jews. This is huge. And if you don't get this, you will fail to understand the Ten Commandments. Before Abraham, not just Moses, before Abraham, these commandments were already in place for all mankind. Murder was already wrong before Mount Sinai, as we see in the story of Cain and Abel. We see Cain and Abel worshiping at the end of days, literally the end of the week, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. Centuries before Israel came to Mount Sinai and received these commands, these commands were already known. Joseph runs from Potiphar's wife. Why? To avoid fornication and adultery. Abraham is disciplined by God for lying. But when God gives manna to Israel before they get to Mount Sinai, they're told, remember the Sabbath when you eat your manna. To put it as clearly as I can, the Ten Commandments are not simply a set of laws given to a particular people at a particular time. They are the very laws that God has written into the consciences of all men. In writing... These laws have been given through the Jews to the whole world. But the world already has these laws written into their souls, that is, into their consciences. Paul says in Romans 2 that they show this by the way their consciences use these principles as they accuse others or try and excuse themselves for their own actions. These commands are a gift from God to all humanity. And they are a lamp for people's feet and a light for their paths. So if you simply think of the Ten Commandments as given to the Jews at Mount Sinai, you're missing something. All of these laws were already given and were already known uh, intrinsically to mankind. Even before they were pronounced in this way at Mount Sinai. And then finally, number ten. Number ten. Every one of the Ten Commandments is reaffirmed in the New Testament. Showing their abiding authority. Um, As we go through our study of the commandments, you will see that these Ten Commandments are all over the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New. 
So thinking of the Ten Commandments as simply Old Testament laws is not accurate because it doesn't deal honestly with the New Testament. We will see each one of these laws reaffirmed in the teaching of Christ and in the teaching of His apostles. He didn't need to reaffirm them. They were already perfect. They were already abiding. But Jesus does reaffirm them. And so Mount Hermon, these Ten Commandments are abiding. They are for our good. They are authoritative over our lives. They are relevant for us. And they are needed for us. And so we should take them seriously. And we should pray for God's help in seeking to obey them. Amen? Amen. All right. Hopefully that prepares us well to move into them and to apply them. Uh, More next week. Let's pray.